<laughs> a history of comedy. It's Another homage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello, welcome to another episode of A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast from the University of Kent about the British stand-up comedy archive. In this podcast, we choose just one item from the archive and we talk about it in detail to sort of try and bring out what it tells us about the nature of stand-up comedy, how it's made, and indeed the history of the, of the form. Uh, I'm Ollie Double. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Elspeth Miller, and we are very much the Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee of comedy archiving. I know, obviously, Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee. <laughs> and actually, we talked about Debbie McGee on our last well, a previous episode. Oh, I can't remember with that. With Lynn Parker. Oh, okay. Because uh, Debbie McGee performed mm. at the first kind of funny women event in 2002. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did, yeah. Paul Daniels didn't. No. Him, him not having been a funny woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, okay, so and we're joined, uh, we're very lucky in this episode to be joined by Matt Hoss, who, uh, you, you have a role in the podcast, don't oh, you? Oh, he- uh, yes, uh, hello, listener. Um, you, you might recognise me from the end of the podcast. Uh, I'm the guy that uh, does the credits, and I'm also uh, the guy that produces the podcast and edits out when everything goes wrong as well. <laughs> so uh, uh, kind of a background role, but I'm very, it, it's very, uh, it's a great privilege to be in the forefront for once, you know, finally get my limelight here. So. <laughs> <laughs> I also do like the fact that you... <laughs> Addressed listener singular. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> there is only one listener to this podcast. Let's not pitch too high, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so okay. Well, we, what we thought for this episode was that you, you before you worked on the podcast, you worked in the stand-up comedy archive. Yeah, I, I was a, a student at the University of Kent. I did my BA and my masters here, and uh, throughout that time, the the archive was established and. Um, uh, there were volunteer roles going, and I, I am the biggest comedy nerd. Um, uh, well, uh, particularly in my friendship group. Well, my my friend group. Uh, uh, that's a singular. Um, <laughs> uh, is, is your friend the only listener to the podcast? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, me and Marco are very tight. Uh, but uh, but uh, the thing is, I, I I'm as soon as I came to the university, I, I fell in love with stand up. In fact, the, the first uh, uh, I, I did drama joint honors with classics in my first degree, and. Uh, in that intro week, I saw the three half pints do an introduction lecture, which I think you were introducing the uh, first years. And I saw him perform, realised there's a master's in stand-up. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Uh, for the, like, So I focused on that for the uh, next couple of years. I got very obsessed with stand-up. Uh, and then in my third year, I got involved with the stand-up archive uh, I think I started off uh, with, at the Linda Smith lecture because um, there was uh, Mark Thomas wanted some um, information and he wanted some volunteers. So I think I stepped up to do that, uh, mostly because I was a big fan of Mark Thomas. So I was like, oh, I get to meet Mark Thomas if I do that. Uh, <laughs> and I think it was unwritten, but I was like, I'm going to make it happen. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so, so I, um, but yeah, so I got, and then I just uh, did regular shifts uh, volunteering, and that would involve uh, listen to interviews and um, not a transcript, but kind of uh, like a, a time coding like, uh, uh, interview, doing an analysis for it as well. And um, and well, can, can I just pick up on that? So, Elspeth, can you tell us what that's for, what function that has when somebody makes notes on the content of, say, an audio recording within an archive? Yeah, so within the Sun Up Comedy Archive collections, we've got a lot of AV material. 
which is basically an and that's basically fairly inaccessible to researchers if if we don't have kind of a description basically of the content because <laughs> they might see a title so we might have you know Mark Thomas interviewed by Ollie Double, but without knowing what what you discussed in that interview, the researcher might not know if they if they'd find that useful to kind of come in and listen to. So we do ask volunteers to kind of summarise as one of their volunteer mm-hmm. tasks. Doing audio summaries is really important, and we get so we don't kind of do transcripts. That would be quite time consuming. Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah. kind of like seven hours to one hour of recording if you're. If you're an okay transcriber, oh, man. Um, but it can take longer. Yeah, um, yeah So we we stick I've, with summaries. Um, yeah, I've yeah. I've transcribed quite a lot of my interviews, and I never do a completely well, very very rarely do a very a completely full verbatim transcript because it's just too long. Mm-hmm. But I do I do transcribe the vast majority of it, and then I keep notes on the other bits that I haven't transcribed. You know, if there's a sentence which has which I know I'm not going to be able to quote, mm-hmm. and I normally allow a day per interview. And some of those, a lot of those interviews aren't aren't even an hour. Nice. That's 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 hard work because uh, yeah, I remember when I did my my master's dissertation, like uh, I'd be lucky if I did like a sentence a day. To be honest, I'd be like, ah, that'd be fine. I'll transcribe that. That's that's one that's one day's work done. <laughs> <laughs> Student life. Uh, and that's so that information is that technically called metadata. Yes, it is part of metadata. Yeah. So so an audio summary, we basically look to kind of. Well, summarising the key points that are discussed in the recording and you'll have, you time code that so that if your researcher wants to go to a particular point, they can do that quite easily. Um, And once we've got that summary, we can load it to our catalogue and that becomes part of the descriptive metadata, I guess, for for that interview. So when a researcher comes to our catalogue, they might be searching for, I don't know, what might they be searching for? Breakfast. What they had for (laughs) breakfast that morning. They might search breakfast. And then they'd come up with all these lovely interviews. They would search for their keywords. Yeah. And obviously the point of the summary is to make sure that you're capturing those key points. You're not transcribing everything that's discussed, but you're kind of mm-hmm. capturing the key <clears throat> points, the key people that are discussed, the key places. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of have to think, you have to summarise with your kind of potential audience in mind, or as broad an audience as possible, um, by, think, by picking out the things that you want to include in the summary. So it's certainly not like completely objective because yeah. everyone would summarise differently. And the but. first couple of uh, ones I did were a little bit wonky as well. Uh, uh, particularly when I was younger, I was a stickler for just not being uh, economical with my my words. So I'd be like, I would literally just write out like full sentences, and it wouldn't be that helpful. So yeah, you kind of learn to kind of uh, slim it down a bit. So, but yeah, it, it's about tagging and making sure people can find it okay. I think one of the things that it does that's quite interesting is, as a researcher, I mean, I've been sort of researching comedy for, this makes me sound incredibly pompous, but I've been researching comedy for 30 years now. And, you know, uh, if you wanted to find a bit in a book before, you'd have to use the index. If there wasn't an index, that's it. You've just got to kind of flick through until you find it. And sometimes you may not even be looking in the right book. But now, quite often, a book will be, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Google Books or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And even if the whole book isn't available, it'll tell you at least the page references so you can slim it down. And it's just, when I used to record on audio cassette, not only was the, the sound quality really poor, but that would just be a bag of stuff 
of unknown content, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. So metadata is great because it, it allows you to know what's in the bag of stuff yeah. and, and precisely where in the bag to find it. Exactly. Again, when I wrote my master's dissertation, um, I went through so many books and there was points where I could remember where certain like quotes were. And I was like, I just wish there was a control F for real <laughs> life, you know, just find stuff instantly. Um, but Well, again, again, I mean, you know, digitised newspaper archives yeah. uh, so much easier to search than... So. than I mean, I, I remember looking for, looking through old copies of The Times when I was doing my PhD try to find old reviews of Frankie Howard from, I don't know, the mid-20th century. Mm-hmm. And they would literally bring you a, a bound copy of the Times, like a, as big as the Times is, a broadsheet-style bound copy. And, of course, all the pages, because newsprint doesn't last that well, you know, or the paper that it's printed on doesn't last that well. So, you know, the, some of the pages would be torn and things. And, and you know, it would be really difficult. You couldn't take a copy of it, so there's nothing you could do. Now, with a few keystrokes, you can find... You know, a, a, often a very good quality scan of the of the article. You can save it to your computer and you can um, print it off. So, uh, it's it's incredible how technology has helped scholars and researchers generally. Uh, you know, to be able to access information. And of course, that's what we're hoping to do with mm. the archive. Now, Matt, you, you, we asked you to choose an item yeah. from the archive, <laughs> and you came up with three possibilities. So. Before we go to the item that you picked out, can we look at the two that you could have won? Oh, well, Ollie said, pick an uh, item from the archive. And I was like, okay, yeah, fine. I browsed the, the, the catalogue and I realised I wanted everything. So uh, uh, the comedy <laughs> nerd kind of uh, was unleashed and I was like, I'll have everything. Uh, but uh, the first item uh, I, I kind of wanted to look at was uh, Richard Herring uh, materials because uh, I am a massive Richard Herring fan. Uh, in fact, Maybe creepily so, but uh, <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, editing that Richard Herring episode was the greatest pleasure of my life. I, I felt uh, <laughs> I, I saluted it as I uh, send it off. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yes, I'm a big Richard Herring fan. In fact, um, slightly embarrassing, but uh, I applied to be a mastermind recently, and one of my uh, my, my my topics, uh, my my mastermind topics, would be the life and works of Richard Herring. So, <laughs> 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 and uh, I'm pretty sure I could have won with that. But uh, but yeah, so I thought just looking at um, some of the print materials of Richard's. Um, uh, or Mr. Herring's uh, uh, <laughs> uh, as uh, his previous um, Edinburgh shows would be really cool, uh, and uh, and there's also some scripts uh, from uh, the radio shows he did as well. Um, so yeah, all of this is fantastically interesting uh, as well. I like this script that you've got out here because I like the heading at the top. Do you want to read that out? Uh, funny radio program, uh, Richard K. Herring uh, on the hour. Uh, so, so I love the fact that it's funny radio yeah, program. Yeah. It's like, and of course, on the hour was one of the. We've mentioned it before in the podcast, but it was a really groundbreaking uh, mm-hmm. radio comedy program. It was really quite unlike radio comedy that had come before it. Mm-hmm. When I first heard it, I didn't hear the beginning of it, and I thought. <laughs> wow, the news has gone mental. Because it just sounded like news, but it was so weird and surreal. I didn't know what I was listening to. There was no studio audience to give you a clue that you were listening to comedy. So you could actually think, am I having a brain hemorrhage? Or has or Radio 4 broken? You know, uh, it, it was a fantastic piece of work. And then not only that, but also if you look at the sort of alumni of, oh, of yeah. On The Hour, people who've come out of it, it's extraordinary. And of course, one of the, one of the great inventions of On The Hour was the character of Alan Partridge, yes. who started as the sort of sports correspondent. Yeah. And in fact, I've, I'm currently listening to the audiobook of I, Partridge, uh, which is um, 
obviously Alan Partridge's autobiography and he, he talks about being on the hour and stuff like that so he has a full chronology of uh, Alan's life and it's really interesting to talk about uh, see him talk about that from a fictional point of view as well uh, but yeah it was, uh, it's, it's a really amazing program as well yeah it's quite an interesting idea isn't it that Steve Coogan as the presumed author of the of the book yeah you know uh, because he's the, the, the you know the brains behind the um, the character um, and the performer, of course, as well. Um, you know that that you, how it can write about the fictional character, but somehow weave real things to do with the placement of the fictional character yeah. within the, the narrative. It's very interesting. Or well, there's loads of scripts in here, which I uh, what I particularly like is that um, Richard has done like little doodles and stuff like that, and it's like a, just uh, like funny, and they happen throughout all the scripts as well. Uh, so I, I assume he just kind of got bored halfway through and just started doodling. Uh, and it's quite nice because I know that some old musical comics used to do the same. You know, often they little if they sign an autograph, they would do a little doodle self portrait as well. I think George mm. Roby did that. I think possibly Little Titch as well. I, I don't. I'm not sure if these are self portraits, but uh, no, <laughs> certainly the one with the, with the long hair and the earrings probably isn't. Yeah, I, I imagine not. But uh, yeah, so there's some like, and there's articles here as well, which is um, articles to do with. Uh, on the hour and and a radio highlight with them mentioned uh, so yeah it's, it's just kind of clippings of uh, uh, like uh, Richard's uh, career really I, what I like about this on the hour thing in particular is what it looks like it is it looks like it's his notes on the initial on an initial meeting about the program and so the references for such as radio for youth page right so youth is an old sort of journalistic term making fun of things that are sort of self-consciously targeted at a youth audience. But then there's just the references here. Nigel Kennedy, uh, Kajagoogoo, <laughs> dreadful 80s synth band. Uh, and, and, you know, it sort of describes little things about how, what the programmes will be like. Uh, magazines, semi-topical, uh, interesting facts, news clips, false spurious. Oh, that sounds like the news now, really. <laughs> yeah. The Bastard, with, with a line around it. I think that's what it says. Yeah, yeah it says yeah. The Bastard. Um I, th- I think so. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, and more nice drawings on the back as well, of course. Yeah, with a very big nose there. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a, a portrait through time. Like uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some really cool stuff on there. Um, and then and then another thing you wanted to you, you considered uh, after Richard Herring was uh, what? Tell us uh, about that. Um, I'm also a big fan of Mark Thomas. Uh, I've uh, I've worked uh, well at the archive. I worked a lot with Mark Thomas material because he's generously donated a lot of stuff uh, uh, we we have here some of his notebooks and one of my uh, uh, tasks uh, to, as a volunteer was uh, there's a big box full of uh, Mark's notepad throughout the years uh, and I had to kind of go through them looking through all the pages and just kind of uh, summarizing a, a notepad and there was just a whole wealth of amazing stuff in there and like there was stuff which because uh, uh, I'm also a stand-up comedian as well there's loads of things in there uh, like, there was moments where he was like uh, reflecting on his self-doubt and uh, wondering uh, uh, whether what's the best like, plan there's bits where he's planning for his activism for his shows there's lots of stuff to do with coca-cola in there uh, and uh, and there's just general gig stuff like uh, uh, like uh, he's written down like gig times he needs to be in there like flights he's booked and it's just all of it's fascinating stuff and Mark Thomas is such a interesting individual and to have this like, like uh, these handbooks just kind of fascinated me when I looked through them because it's it's an insight into uh, comedians' working methods, not just yeah. their ideas, but the organisation of 
yeah. running an act and, yeah. and being a professional comedian. It's, it's literally like the books behind the business end of the comedy world. And uh, uh, yeah, so I found that interesting. And um, in, in one of the you know, pads is that um, the, he talks about when uh, his friend uh, Martin betrayed him. And, he talk, and, and that was the thing that um, inspired Cuckoo. Uh, and so he talked about all of his emotions and what happened. And it was just, a, it was just, it was so like thrilling and hooking as well. Uh, yeah, I, could, I can really see that. I mean, just flicking through them, they are really interesting documents. You know, you've, you've got this, for example, Stephen Hawking measuring how big is the universe? Is the universe a fixed size? Does it have an end? Uh, and as the speed of light is variable, is it possible to accurately measure it? Yeah, and it goes on like that. I mean, they're, just, they're very interesting documents. For, you know, it's a sort of... It must have been really difficult to try and make sense of these when you were looking through them. Yeah, um... Luckily, as I say, I'm a big nerd, so uh, I, I did kind of try and decipher what time periods so they were kind of spanning, because some span for a couple of years, uh, and for example, the one I'm holding in my hand, he, he hasn't finished it, but there's there's two sides to it, so there's one uh, which is um, the right side up, but on the other side, at the opposite end, uh, it's the other way, so um, so he does it the other way around, so yeah, essentially, there's two books in here, essentially, uh, and, and uh, is that for a reason? I mean, is, is one side organisation, the other side at, ideas or something? I think it's more to do with, um, uh, it might be a fresh year. I think it's a, a similar kind of content. Um, okay. Um, but on the other side, it's just kind of, um, it's just starting again, really. You might have, because you didn't want to waste a whole book, maybe you just started on the other side and just worked that way. Or maybe you just didn't realise it was full. Maybe you just picked it up the wrong way around. Uh, yeah. um, who knows? But uh, yeah, uh, so uh, for example, in here, he's written down his um, Edinburgh Fringe dates and stuff like that and uh, his order numbers and stuff like that. I feel a little bit rude looking for uh, like the private stuff. Um, but And like in some of the archive materials, there's like old phone numbers and stuff like that of like, like famous people as well. Um, the, the 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 stalker man in me is uh, tempted to kind of ring him up just to see if it's still working, but, uh, but obviously we would call the police yeah. if we started ringing random famous people. Well, you know, it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> There's a little thing called a restraining. Order. So, oh, but sorry. anyway, in addition to that, we also have his a few other things to do with Mark's act. This is a proof copy of his book. 100 Acts of Minor Descent. Yes. And you were involved in that show. Uh, yeah, I was uh, involved... Well, I'm actually involved in a, a couple of Mark shows because um, we, um, we've worked together a couple of times. Well, well I've worked on his project a couple of times because uh, uh, luckily I, I did get involved with him and he uh, he kind of took me under his wing. And uh, yeah, uh, so with the 100 Acts, um, before I really... Uh, I, this is before I met Mark Thomas... Uh, uh, he uh, I, he did a show at the Gulbenkian, uh, and that was um, the October. It was October, uh, and he was doing 100 Acts of Mind Descent. He hadn't finished the 100 Acts yet, but he was still doing the, the show. And this because is, the tour was ongoing. Yes. And so as the tour <coughs> went on, more and more acts would have been yeah. uh, done. And it was a challenge that if he didn't do it by a certain point, then he had to make a check out to UKIP. Yeah, it was a thousand pound check, and I believe it had to be done by the May the thirteenth, I believe, right. uh, two thousand and fourteen. Right. I think, but um, don't quote me on that. But uh, yeah, so he had to do that, and so I saw him in October time. But um, he still did like a ninety minutes of material because it was about the ideas behind the show, and he still had lots of anecdotes uh, of uh, everything. Um, but yeah, so um, but that was the first time I saw Mark Thomas, and in that he talked about a routine where uh, there was an American politician. Um, I can't remember what his name, but uh, he was a he was an anti um, he was an anti LGBT um, Republican, 
Uh, and what uh, the LGBT community did was took his name and used it as a definition uh, for a vulgar um, uh, homosexual gay uh, sex act. Uh, sorry. Uh, as... You get a bit embarrassed there, Matt. <laughs> no, don't be embarrassed. It's perfectly natural. <laughs> it's like talking to my parents, but <laughs> it's perfectly natural. Birds and bees. Uh, um, it was an act of love between people of the same sex. There we go. Uh, wicked. You can be my editor. Uh, but, uh, so they took his name uh, and they, they redefined it. Uh, and Which is a very funny thing to do because really what you're funny. doing is taking a lot of people who are anti-LGBT mm-hmm. are deeply uptight about that type of thing. Yeah, so to be be having their name used to describe <laughs> something that would make them feel horribly uncomfortable yeah. is a brilliant revenge. And uh, Ma- uh, Mark Thomas, he did a similar thing, but he wanted to um, uh, do it with uh, Farage. He wanted uh, the term Farage uh, to be defined. He wanted, uh, well, as he pronounces it, Farage. Farage, yes, uh, to run with garage. Uh, uh, and um, with that, he, he asked... Um, people to tweet in definitions and to find definitions for him and he would choose a winner at the end of it and uh and i sent in one uh, I, I was working uh, uh, on campus uh, at the university uh, origins and uh, basically uh, I, I was carrying out bins and some of the bin juice dropped on my foot and it's like there's not a name for a bin juice Farage, uh, and uh, so I sent that in, and uh, uh, it got favorited at the time. I didn't think anything more of it. And then, about six months afterwards, uh, I get this uh, I, I get this notification on Twitter, uh, and Mark Thomas had chosen my, my definition as the winning word, and I was so my mind was so blown. I was like, "Oh my god, that's amazing!" And uh, uh, Johnny and the Baptist even created a song about uh, the winning definition as well. And uh, that was my first kind of uh, that's how I got involved with the hundred acts, and uh, and. When I went uh, at the Linda Smith lecture after uh, I had worked with him on the, in the archive, I told him about that, and he gave me the biggest hug, and it was one of the most satisfying moments in my life. Uh, uh, so it was nice. Uh. And, and, and it's worth knowing that if you like the idea of the word Farage meaning bin juice, yeah. I think you can still buy on Mark's website can, or at gigs yeah. sometimes a sticker that says "Mind the Farage." Yeah. And it's got a, you know, like a kind of um, simplified drawing yeah. of uh, a person with a bin and you know juice coming out of it. And I have one at my bin at home, yes. and we have known people to pass us by to stop and take photos yeah. of it. <laughs> but that, that's why I love about Mark Thomas as well, because he's creating a world of comedy beyond. Um, his life on the stage and I found that so fascinating that he has all these different effects beyond the stage and uh, uh, yeah uh, he's one of the only performers that really does engage with that as well. Uh, well talking of which I mean there's some, there's some more things here which are quite nice uh, there's a, a stamp uh, which I think is from uh, yeah 100 acts of public service announcement uh, so this is five rich it's a stamp so I'm having to read it backwards but it's to stamp on things and it says Five richest UK families own more than uh, the, the poorest 20% of the population. Yeah. So that's, what's that say, 12.6 million people yeah. own less than the, than the five richest families in the UK. And I, I don't yeah. know what you... What this, oh, I could have turned it around <laughs> and they're going to read it themselves. Yeah. Um, I don't know what this would have been to stamp on. Maybe, yeah, maybe a banknote or something. Yeah. Well, I've just done a quick Google. Ooh. And the, uh, the other stamp that we've got there... Yeah, so we've got two more stamps. Do you want to describe them? Uh, so one says, is it strike? strike. In a mm-hmm. speech bubble. And one is a, a man being hung, which isn't the most pleasant. But I think that was that was stamped on banknotes as part so. of the 100 Acts. So, so you, but I'm not you, sure you, about the strike. Yeah. But, I quite like the idea of strike on yeah. banknotes, because everybody just yeah. opens the banknote and goes... 
Wow. And I wonder with the hangman, I wonder if he's supposed to hang off the pound sign. Um, yeah, I think, it, yeah, around the, twi- think, like, the, the yeah. current, the, the mount. Yeah. yeah, and also, um, just to know, uh, that the, uh, the hangman, uh, well, the man hanging has a briefcase in his hand, so it mm. does look quite corporate as well. Oh, so that's a really that, good observation. So that's, I think the point is it's supposed to be, it's not supposed to be, um, uh, it's, but it has a, a, a point of anti-capitalism, I believe. Uh, yeah. Uh, like is all it related to the banks and driving to the airport kind of Possibly. Um, this is to do with um, before Labour got in or something. At some point in, in British yeah. political history, a bunch of rich people were saying, if Labour win, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the country, including Andrew Lloyd Webber, incidentally. Mm-hmm. And Mark's campaign was, we'll drive you to the airport. Yeah, and there's, there's, the website's still open as well. Mm. And, they, and it has some great... Set. There's people who are like... Uh, um, uh, who, who sign up to drive people. And uh, there's, I think someone said, I haven't got a car, but I have a cannon. I can shoot you out if you have a cannon. This is a nice one. Right? It's a Christmas card with, with uh, like rats sweeping up in front of a Christmas tree. Yeah. And it says, uh, I feel like a rat in a palace. That's a quote from a John Lewis cleaner. And it's a satirical item about the John Lewis Christmas ads. So the base, I won't read the whole thing, but uh, it says, but the basic message of the card is, if John Lewis can afford to spend £7 million on an advert, they could afford to pay their cleaners a living wage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a, it's really it's quite a funny item. But in addition, it's, it's making a very serious and valid point. You yeah. know, yeah. So, yeah. So I think they were put into John Lewis stores, weren't they? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. John Lewis must have loved that. Yeah. Okay, so but that, but those are the things that we're not going to talk about in the episode. But yeah, we we're totally not going to talk about them. Um, we we have instead picked something else. Haven't and we? what is that? Um, well, you say we. It's you've picked it. Well, uh, I, I've kind of forced it upon you. Uh, but uh, uh, what I've chosen today uh, is um, an interview conducted by Oliver Double, and that is done with Pappies. And uh, one of the reasons I picked... Um, well, I, I was really interested in picking uh, an, an Oliver Double interview because uh, there's uh, for, for your book, for the second edition of um, Getting a Joke, you've, uh, you interviewed a lot of, a lot of comedians, uh, uh, and all of them were fascinating. And, uh, and there was, I had access to uh, listen to them uh, for the archive. I, I did a summary for them. And, uh, for the metadata? Yes. Descriptive uh, metadata. Yes. <laughs> uh, Descriptive metadata. Yeah. I've got to learn that. <laughs> we should get on T-shirts for the... Uh, for our <laughs> That's listeners. actually a great idea. <laughs> uh, but uh, we... Uh, yeah, so I, I listened to them, uh, and they were all really interesting. They kind of... Uh, they were very similar to um, Stuart Goldsmith's uh, Comedians Comedian podcast, because uh, they had that kind of... Um, uh, just an intellectual response to comedy but the one that really stuck out uh, and uh, I fell in love with Pappies because of this uh, this interview uh, well I, I was a fan of them beforehand but like, just uh, the way they kind of spoke about their art and craft really resonated with me uh, as a uh, like a open mic comedian and it kind of taught me some things about marketing and about podcasting and about uh, just how to kind of uh, develop a joke really and uh, and the uh, in Pappies, there's this free, um, this this Ben, there's Matthew and Tom, and all three of them kind of play a different role within the sketch group, and uh, and I found that interesting. The different kind of uh, personas and uh, roles within comedy that um, you have to kind of develop, and this this interview kind of summarised that as well. Well, can can I just ask because um, Pappies are, yeah, as you say, uh, um, Matthew Crosby, Tom Parry, and Ben Clark. Yeah. 
and they're a sketch group who've uh, been around for probably about 10 or 12 years now yeah. and they uh, they've be they've been nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award twice I think uh, but anyway the, the point is that uh, the, so within the sketch group they're almost like three stand-up personas yeah and I think that's what's interesting about Pappies because um, I, I think you describe them in your book though I might be wrong is that um, you, they're not straight sketch uh, but this sketch blended with stand-up and I think that's what I find interesting with Pappies because uh, uh, when they're live at their gigs um, in between the patter in between uh, the sketches between the three of them and just how they interact with the crowd is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in fact that uh, I at a gig in uh I think it was my third year. It was uh, the three half pints, uh, noise next door, um, and the pappies as well. There's someone else. Uh, Alex Smith. It was Alex Smith. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, side note, at that gig, it was particularly rough because uh, it was a lovely gig, but there was some hecklers, and uh, uh, three half pints dealt with them quite nicely. Uh, so did pappies, and uh, Alex Smith uh, kind of also put them down uh, but uh, they were asked to leave in the interval uh, but uh, and they were really annoying as well so everyone's kind of glad that they're gone and when Alex came back on stage afterwards it's like oh thank god they're gone this one man kind of walks down with this full pint walking down the aisles and uh, he's, one, he's part of the group and he stayed behind and he threw the drink in Alex's face and he just covered him with beer and he walked out people jeered this guy and there was just a moment of tension and Alex was like well, you've met my dad, <laughs> and it was just uh, it was a very intense moment. But um, yeah, uh, sorry. Especially if I missed that bit because that I that was my first live gig that I went to after breaking my hip. Oh, I'd, yes, I'd it been, was. Yeah, yeah, I'd been sort of stuck inside because I was on a Zimmer frame. I couldn't leave the house for about a month, and that was the first one that I saw. And actually, I missed that moment mm-hmm. because. I was backstage doing a later interview with Pappies oh, for a later really? project. Oh, that's so cool! Uh, but can I can I just ask? Um, we, we, you know, you, you've you've listened. I mean, these were not un- unlike Steve Goldsmith. These weren't recorded to be aired. Yeah, they were recorded just for me, for, for you know, to to have interesting information about how comedians work and so on. And um, and so in a way that it's almost like a private conversation. Yeah, yeah. So so what was it? What was it like, sort of listening back to a private conversation from the past with other people? Well, uh, well, particularly with Pappies, though they do do this on Stuart Goldsmith, because um, I've I had only seen them perform, and when they're performing, they're they're like uh, they're on fire, they're they're vibrant and they're performative. But in this conversation, they were. Just they're, they're obviously just like just like they'd be acting like a normal because it was in the it was in a restaurant kind of setting, and they were just talking intellectually about their their craft, and it was fascinating because uh, they uh, they though they weren't being performative, they were they were still as vibrant as they were, but not on stage. You know what I mean? But that they were they were just they were toned down, just speaking normally, and because. Uh, my, I I love Tom Parry a lot, like a, a lot. Uh, but uh, and but hearing him discuss um, so matter of factly about comedy was just very inspirational as well. So it was yeah. It was, but to kind of answer the question, it was um, it, it kind of uh, it did ring a lot like a, a com com episode because of the matter of fact you were you were interviewing um, comedians about comedy. But uh, yeah, it did feel kind of well. Whenever I do work in the archive, it, it as I mentioned earlier, it's a little strange kind of. Uh, listening to like private stuff or looking through Mark's private books and uh, materials which people would probably never have thought people would look at. Uh, so it is strange to kind of 
be kind of a voyeur in that way. Can I pick up on that? Because there is some material that won't be available publicly within the archive. Yeah, not too much, but there is. So the first thing that comes to mind is the Funny Women collection. So there's mm-hmm. a fair amount in that which would be closed for quite a long time because it's got, because of data protection reasons, really. So you've got people's kind of submission forms to when they're entering the competition, which has got kind of addresses and personal details. Of on. course, yeah. So they won't be open for a very long time. Um, and even the judging forms are kind of partially closed, really. The, the kind of the access to those is only with permission from the depositor. Um, but within other collections, I mean, some of these notebooks, actually, they're kind of restricted in a way in that, they, as you said earlier, they do have personal kind of data within them. So before, if anybody requested them before we kind of provided that, the, the, reading, the material in the reading room, we'd look through it and assess kind of what sort of personal details are in them and depending on kind of depending on the the record itself we'd either create a surrogate copy by kind of getting rid of kind of personal details and providing Mm -hmm. access not to the original but to a copy or we would allow people to look at material but with very strict restrictions on what they can do and there's strict restrictions anyway because of kind of copyright restrictions Mm -hmm. anyway um, but they wouldn't be allowed to take photographs, for example, or, or notes on a particular... If it's got people's contact details in, they wouldn't be able to kind of take take those notes down, for example. And, it, and it's worth really emphasising that because, um, you know, there may be future, potential future depositors mm-hmm. listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually that's... So when we, when we get any new collections in, what we ask depositors to do is sign a deposit agreement. And that, that, I, that lets them determine whether... Well, lots of things. It lets them determine whether they're gifting the material or whether they're loaning it. Um, it lets them determine if they're keeping their copyrights and intellectual property rights, which most people do, for obvious reasons. Um, but we do need them to kind of declare that, because obviously, again, copyright lasts a very long time, 70 years after the death of the copyright holder. Although we're all around at the moment, the, obviously, the idea of the archive is that we keep the material for, for a very long time. So... Mm-hmm archivist colleagues in the future will need to kind of be able to trace copyright holders um, and it also lets so the deposit agreement also lets them determine whether there's any access restrictions so it's completely up to our depositors what sort of conditions of access they put on on their material and for the depositors for the stand-up comedy archive we haven't really had any restrictions um, apart from those within the funny women collection and those which we've imposed because of other data protection issues mm-hmm. um, some there's some restrictions in that people don't want material made available online so some people some depositors only want people to come into the reading room to look at their material but otherwise there's no kind of closed material but that is a, an option open to people yeah but what, what we're balancing there is the desire to make the material as, as freely available as possible because we want people to use it we want people to come into the archive we, and, and that could be anybody. It could be students. It yeah. could be you know academics uh, doing research. It could be ordinary members of the public who are just interested in comedy. It could be comedians uh, who are interested, in perhaps, in finding yeah, out about definitely. somebody that who who influenced them, um, and, and and to have a quick glimpse at how other comedians have worked, for example. Um, so we want that, but at the same time, we don't want to sort of abuse the material. Uh, we, yeah. we we have a great responsibility to mm-hmm. you know to protect people's stuff. Yeah. yeah. And any any restriction that is put on the material in terms of if we're talking about access and fair access will need to have an end date. An end date. Yeah. 
So obviously anything that comes under data protection has an end date, but any any other restriction, somebody, a depositor might want people not to access their diaries, for example, and that's fine, and we can close those diaries, but again, it will need to have an end date. Mm. So that again, people in 30, 40 years time know whether they can provide access to that material yet or not. So. Great stuff. Yeah. I, I wanted to go back to this thing yes. about listening to the conversation that I had with Padpies yeah. in this sure. interview. Do you think that you could, because they spoke, I think in that, I think it was in that interview that they spoke about uh, the idea that they have slightly different personas within their podcasts than they do in their act. Yeah. Do, do you think that the people you heard speaking, that you could see any hint of their stage personas in the way that they spoke? I think so, yeah, because uh, obviously I think they are themselves when on stage, even though they are personas. Uh, it's, a, it's a balanced question because um, I think they are a lot like their, their themselves. But then again, someone like, like Tom, who is usually in the more outrageous and kind of silly one, of the, well, they're all silly, but uh, uh, in, 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 the, like, in this uh, like conversation, he was remarkably um, earnest and, uh, uh, and like quite uh, engaged with the, the conversation, if you know yeah, what it's I mean. It's very, very thoughtful. Yeah. Um, I think... But it's just that, well, the reason I ask is because Tom uh, speaks, Tom and Matthew seem to have a kind of thing on stage where... It's like, okay, who's in charge here? Yeah. <laughs> Tom's going to be very outrageous. Yeah. Matthew's going to kind of come in and try and rein him yeah, in yeah. on behalf of sensibleness. Yeah. Even though Matthew is himself yeah. actually being very silly. Yeah, yeah. That's... And often will be the, the more kind of gag. He's more the kind of groucho marks yeah, I think so. of, yeah. of, of the group. And then Ben is more probably the harpo. He's the quieter one who's yeah. on the edge looking at things from a slightly odd angle. And yeah. that those patterns sort of, albeit that Tom is not being silly in the interview, but he is... Having I, that sort of dominant voice, yeah. and and Ben is usually in most interviews that I've heard, he is usually the quieter one. Particularly in the first uh, Concom Pod episode with um, uh, with Pappy, is that he he speaks like two lines in it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And it's dominated by um, Matthew and Tom. Uh, uh, but and in the drunken episode, it becomes a joke. Doesn't yeah, it? Is yeah. Is Ben going to be able to speak? Yeah, or not? and he, he does. He does speak quite a lot in that. And again, he's eloquent in that as well. I mean, all all the guys are very. Uh, uh, eloquent in uh, in the interviews because um, they're obviously they're not performing. They are really funny, but they are, they are um, they're going for a different vibe as yeah. well. Well, we we we're not sure at the time of recording this whether we're going to be able to play any of the audio from the interview. But my strong guess is we are. But because we haven't got that permission sorted out yet, we don't know what the clip's going to be. So we're going to listen to the clip and then we're going to have a reaction to it. Yeah. But we're going to have to make that reaction fairly generic. Yeah. Okay. Edit. What do you think the, the, the sort of similarities and differences of doing doing uh, uh, do pack stuff and doing your solo stuff? Um, I think like, the, the, the key difference is, and this is this is changing. Oh, really quickly, just at the start of our sets now, we're we're, we're sort of we're running in a new show. We're doing something we've never really done before, which is we go out at the start to say hello to the audience, and we know what our first thing is we're going to do, but there'll often be five or six minutes of us just messing around together on stage with the audience and it's the closest we've ever got to three-man stand-up and I think it comes from the fact that we're doing these this bangers and mash podcast where we just sit and chat and try and make funny out of just our own experiences and, and our, our, the, our, the interplay between the three of us so that's something that we're we're sort of moving towards yeah and there are bits bits in every show now where 
like Tom will, will tell a genuine story from his day and we'll react to that or yeah. or, we'll tell, or we'll tell stories about each other and that's that's really fascinating um, but I think the, the, the key difference still remains between stand-up and sketch is that once you get into the actual sketches people know people can't suspend their disbelief that it's um, real it's the, well it's prepared you know yeah. like, uh, like a woman came up to us uh, after a gig um, last uh, two weekends ago we played a a weekend club in London and, and um, she said you were the most prepared act on the bill you really were you, I mean not the funny you didn't say we were the only sketch group on that yeah, night yeah, yeah. We're the only she, one. she said you, you really planned out what you were going to do I mean, I mean that, this is kind of a compliment but what it, what it basically means is like we come on we've got our cop we've got our set we've got sound cues so people can kind of see they're watching a show whereas I think a lot of people still watch stand up and go it's incredible how's he making all this up yeah, yeah. and, and, and stand up stand ups do loads of little I mean sketch teams do loads of little tricks as well with the, the, the different, the kind of different bags of tricks but the standard trick of going what else can I tell you what else is going like all of those kind of things yeah of, uh, everything's oh, present yeah. this happened to me today yeah exactly I was just in the you know I was just on the way here and you know like um, also why am I doing the voice like that yeah yeah that sounds like that yeah yeah like that, and, and they're obviously all the yeah. tricks and, and, um, I don't know what I'm, yeah, don't, don't what I'm doing this mime yeah wasn't wanking off too, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but like, um, I think there's, a, yeah, and, and people do have a higher tolerance for it uh, with stand-up, uh, and critics in particular are always uh, uh, like saying about us like um, choreographed ad libs or um, stage fake, corp- fake corpsing or... and things like that. Like they're these big evils of sketch comedy, but it, like. Um, but that happens in all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. But yeah, it doesn't. No. It never gets flagged. Oh, that was really awesome! Wow, it blew my mind. Yeah, I really like the bit about the unicorn. Yeah, yeah. My, my favourite bit was when they gave me the listener standing ovation. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> they reached through time yeah, yeah. and saw you transcribe or making the, met- the descriptive metadata. Yeah, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy is a phrase that yeah. trips easily from your lips. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too many times. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so they looked through time and they saw you making the descriptive metadata and they said, Matt Hoss, uh, yeah, mentioned this in the metadata. The data and don't forget the time code. But, like that happens more than you think. <laughs> okay, so uh, I think we'll probably finish the episode yes. there because we've had a lot of really interesting discussion. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say um, based on the items that we've looked at today? Uh, obviously, if you're a fan of this podcast, do come down to the archive because uh, if you're a fan of comedy like me, this. This place is like made of dreams because there's uh, uh, I can like touch Richard Herring stuff uh, legally. Uh, um, uh, What's quite funny is you, as you touch Richard Herring stuff, you put your hands towards the pile. Yeah. And the top of the pile is a fly of a talking cock. So your hands were really approaching uh, yeah. talking cock yeah. by Richard Herring. It was a, it was an intentional Freudian slip. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I've, I've come across very bad in this episode, but uh, nah, yeah. uh, but like I do urge people to come along and see it because like it's um, it's fascinating and uh, I say like the reason we uh, well the archive collects uh, all this stuff is so people can kind of look at it and uh, there's so many interesting articles and artifacts and uh, yeah uh, it's it's one of my favorite places to come and as a as a university student it was one of my like favorite things to do uh, every week so yeah please come down and have a look. Talking of which, uh, this podcast isn't just about us talking to you about stuff. It's also about you getting involved directly.
Get involved! There are various ways that you can get involved in this podcast, but first of all, you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us via standup at kent.ac.uk. That's standup, all one word, no hyphen, at kent.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at histcompod. And we're also on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page. Uh, the first way you can get involved is go to the catalogue, which you can find online, find a listing for a comedy object and nominate it. We'll talk about all nominated objects in future episodes. That's the vanilla version. And if you do that, we're going to send you a badge of the, um, of the podcast and also a badge of the Stand Up Comedy Archive. So do remember to include a postal address. The chocolate chip version of getting involved is to send us an email, arrange to come into the Stand Up Comedy Archive, look at some material for yourself, record a short piece about one of the objects that you've seen. If you do this, you'll be given an amazing Stand Up Comedy Archive limited edition t-shirt in your appropriate clothing size and uh, a podcast badge as well Um, and we'll use those recordings in in future episodes and the stupidest way of getting involved is to record your own version of our theme tune and if we like it we'll use it in a future episode one last thing please leave a review of this podcast on itunes it's really important to us and if you do that send us a screen grab of your review uh, on an email or something and we'll and leave a postal address and we'll send you a badge a history of comedy and several objects is devised and presented by dr oliver double and elspeth miller for the british stand-up comedy archive brought to you by the university of kent this is made possible by the university of kent's public engagement research fund Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hoss.